Hey, everybody, and welcome back to My JS Story. This week, we're going to be talking to Valery Karpov. Valery, do you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Great to be here. Um, do you want to just give everyone a brief introduction to who you are and what you work on? Oh, sure. My name is Valery Karpov. I um, currently am the platform tech lead, backend lead for a small tech startup called Booster Fuels. We do on-demand gas delivery in San Francisco and Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, you might know me as the guy who maintains Mongoose, the guy who coined the mean stack, or um, the author of two books, Professional Angular JS and the 8020 Guide to ES2015 Generators. I also blog at thecodebarbarian.com and produced a uh, video course on the mean stack for edX and a Redux video course for Thingster. So lots of cool stuff. I was going to say, um, the reason I don't know where you work is because I don't have that on the episode title for the episode you were on. We, <laughs> we had you on in 2014 oh. to talk about the mean stack, and we had you and Ward Bell on actually on that one. Uh, Ward is now a a regular contributor to Adventures in Angular. Uh, that was episode 92, if people are going back and looking that far. Um, and then more recently, we had you on to talk about the 8020 Guide to ES2015 Generators, and that was episode 210 back in May of 2016. So, yeah, I was I was just going to say, I, I, I don't remember exactly where you're working now. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the last two podcasts, I was, or actually the first podcast I worked at MongoDB, the, uh, the, uh, the one about generators, I was already at Booster Fuels. So I've been at Booster for better part of a year now. Yeah, and I think we talked about what Bo Booster Fuels does as far as the gas delivery and stuff. So uh, we'll, we'll just uh, refer people back to that. Uh, episode and talk about it then. Um, but anyway, I thought we could dive in and get your story. I think it's really interesting. Um, some of the things you've done and some of the places you've been in the JavaScript community. And I thought we could, you know, kind of tease that out, see what it's like to be Valeri Karpov. <laughs> yeah, cool. So, uh, oh, would you like me to just like talk about how I got started coding? Yeah. Why don't we start there? How, how did you get started coding? Well, so, Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance, or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at FreelanceRemoteConf.com. Yeah, why don't we start there? How, how did you get started coding? Well, so when I was a kid, I got into Pokemon, right? Like everybody my age. But I got into going online and discovered the internet and realized that, oh, there's a lot of information about Pokemon on the internet. So I kind of like geeked out and started learning about all the different stats and different levels that like Pokemon got certain moves and whatever. Started getting on Pokemon message boards and that kind of just led nat naturally to tinkering with HTML, CSS, PHP, so on and so forth. Um, so then I got into doing algorithms contests in high school. Then that led to majoring in CS in college. And well, my fate was sealed from there. I was going to be a nerd for life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so much there. So so the information on Pokemon, I mean, how, how far back was this? 
Um, oh, I would have been about nine or ten when I started. Uh, when I started just like getting into figuring out PHP and HTML and stuff like that, I still remember uh, my parents once got me an HTML book for Christmas. I'm probably the only person who ever read an HTML like uh, uh, textbook cover to cover. <laughs> you might be surprised some of the other people we've had on the show so far, but yeah, um, it, it is kind of weird. I mean i I started learning HTML and I just kept fiddling with it till I figured it out. <laughs> I'm much more that type of person than the read the book person. So that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've never actually, after that, I never managed to read like a programming book cover to cover. Well, which is kind of why I wrote 80, uh, the 80, 20 guide to yes, 2015 generators the way I did. I kind of wanted to solve that problem and make it something that like you could actually consume the entire thing as opposed to just, you know, reading one chapter and then forgetting about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, as you were learning to program and learning PHP, I'm curious, you know, at, at nine or 10, what are the challenges at that age? What, <laughs> what's that like? To be honest, I wasn't building anything new in PHP. I was pretty much just like, okay, you know, here's a, here's a message board software thing. I'm just going to like go in there and tweak one little thing. Oh, okay. So it wasn't, I wasn't building stuff from scratch. I was just kind of tinkering to get, uh, to get like a message board up or something like that. And be honest, I didn't really learn proper PHP until I got into high school. Mostly I stuck with the HTML and CSS as like a teenager and as a 10 to 12 year old. That makes sense. So how did you wind up getting into JavaScript then? <laughs> well, so uh, the first startup I did back around 2008 was a uh, was called Scavenger. It's now known as Level Up. It's a mobile payment platform that was initially a text message based scavenger hunt company. Uh, it was kind of a crazy idea at the time because, well, this was back before the iPhone actually existed. So we were like a mobile gaming company in the era of uh, flip phones. But we uh, we needed the ability to kind of build out these scavenger huds. So we built like a little web-based dashboard for building these uh, these scavenger huds. So that was really like my first non-trivial JavaScript experience. Built uh, built it all out in prototype. <laughs> you remember prototype? Oh, yeah. And Scriptaculous. Uh, yeah. Prototype and Scriptaculous. Really pretty animations. It was really fun. Um but had to deal with Internet Explorer, which was not so fun. But yeah, this our only we uh, we built it or we started using JavaScript just because, well, the only other alternative that I knew of was like Java X and Swing, all those things. And that would have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So we just figured, OK, you know, we're just going to build like a little uh, web based tool for building out these scavenger hunts, make it easy for us to sell them. So that's kind of how I got into JavaScript. It just seemed like the natural way to just build a, out a UI very quickly, very cheaply. That that sounds really fun. Um, I, I mean, I remember uh, when I first got into programming, it was jQuery was just kind of up and coming. And so we did quite a bit of work in Scriptaculous and Prototype. And yeah, exactly. I remember just being like, what's this crazy new jQuery thing? And why do I not? And why does it not implicitly add like the uh, the why do I have to put like the element ID uh, after a hashtag as opposed to uh, as opposed to just having, you know, dollar of element ID like you used to do mm -hmm. back in prototype? Yep. So uh, it sounds like you did a lot of this work in JavaScript before JavaScript and front end development really became a thing. 
Well, I mean, what, what, what was that like? What were the challenges there? It was just really difficult to build out like a complex UI back in those days, just because, well, there was with jQuery and with prototype, there was no notion of things like components. It made it really hard to kind of encapsulate state into smaller chunks. So we just ended up having a lot of jQuery or prototype like based spaghetti where it's like, okay, you know, I have uh, have an HTML page that's served up by PHP. Um, P- the PHP does a little bit of magic to bootstrap out the JavaScript correctly. And then the JavaScript just basically like attaches manually to elements with different IDs and adds in fancy little animations and click handlers and all that sort of thing. So it worked out nicely, but we had to be very disciplined and had to struggle a lot with trying to build that out correctly. Also, testing was kind of a nightmare, as you might imagine, just mm-hmm. because, well, this was back before uh, this was back long before Karma existed. This was be- even before JS Test Driver existed. Um, Selenium. I'm not even sure if Selenium was around back then. So our testing processes were very manual. Um, I don't think I even. Yeah, I don't think I ever actually managed or until maybe about 2011 or so. I don't think I managed to get any sort of automated testing for front end JavaScript going. And that was with uh, that was with JS test driver back in the day. Yeah, um, I so I got into web development in 2006 ish Ruby on Rails. And mm. um, yeah, I remember fiddling with Selenium when it was brand new. Or fairly new anyway, fairly unknown. And yeah, just testing testing web interfaces was painful. <laughs> so painful. And and, you, uh, and it's gotten marginally better since. I don't know. I think like 2012, 2013 were times when, you know, things really developed and made it a lot better, but things haven't gotten that much better since. I, I think that's true, and it's kind of funny because um, you know, testing tools change and testing techniques change. And, um, you know, you'd think that the technology would, um, you know, take leaps and bounds forward. But I, I feel like in a lot of ways, our, our JavaScript testing infrastructure has just kind of turned into a, another, um, like we kind of got parity with what we had in other languages. And then it got adapted slightly so that it would work on web interfaces. And so, you know, you have Jasmine, which was based on RSpec in uh, Ruby, and then you've got the the test unit style stuff, um, which was based on JUnit, I think, from Java. And yeah, you know, people just built it off of what they knew and what they liked. But yeah, I haven't seen any major leaps forward with things since then. I mean, you can automate it and you can make it work. But yeah, I, I agree. We're, we're kind of in the same boat that we were in, you know, seven eight years ago yeah i think like karma was the big game changer in my mind when that came out around 2012 2013 Mm -hmm. just because it made it just so easy to instrument all these different browsers for uh for running tests but things since then have kind of uh plateaued i think um one particular big limitation was uh, Sauce Labs removed their free tier, so now it made it so now it's not really possible to, or unless there is an alternative to Sauce Labs. But Sauce Labs was basically like AWS for browsers. Mm-hmm. You can just uh, tell it to spawn up like you know Internet Explorer eight running on Windows seven, and it will do it for you. And then you can control that browser remotely via an API, which made it really powerful to just like run 
you can hook it up to Karma and you can basically just run your tests on whatever browser you wanted. Um, but again, got rid of their free tier, so I don't really know what to do with that right now. I've mostly switched to working on backend over the last couple of years anyway, so haven't really been in touch with it. Yeah, makes sense. So let, let's talk a little bit about your history with JavaScript and, and some of the contributions you've made out there in uh, the JavaScript community. You, you mentioned that you worked on Mongoose with MongoDB. Um, that's a little bit different level, I think, than most people get to with their JavaScript, just in the sense that instead of building an application, you're sort of building a library that bolts onto a utility that people can use with their applications. How is that mm-hmm. different from building an actual web application? Um, I think you uh, you have very different challenges there in terms of your co- or your customers are your and en- are actual engineers as opposed to end users. And the nice thing about working at Booster is you know our our app is relatively simple. We just kind of say, okay, you know, you want to request gas, tell us where your car is. That's it. You press a button, you get fuel. Whereas there's a lot broader of a surface area to Mongoose, and people interact with it in much deeper ways than they do with like your standard mobile app. So that makes it so that you need to have a broader suite of tests and you also need to kind of work on uh, relationships with people that are using your software so you actually know what how they're using it and what you should do to make things better for them and what particular parts of the API they rely very heavily on, what parts of the API are not quite as important. How do you do that? How do you find a way to interface with these people? Because um, if you have users of like a mobile app or something, you know, sometimes you can build in some sort of feedback form or something like that. Whereas with something like Mongoose, it's like, yeah, how how do you even start? Is it all like GitHub issues or something else? Uh, GitHub issues and emails. Again, with mobile apps, people are not as deeply invested in it. With Mongoose, you know, it's like uh, it's uh, for a lot of these companies, it's very much part of their core infrastructure and something that, you know, helps them uh, and something that basically is fundamental to their business. So they're more willing to kind of reach out to you directly and, uh, and discuss like, OK, you know, this is uh, this is kind of what problems we have here. These are uh, this is what we'd like to see that uh, improved. And it's really easy that way to just build up the relationship because, well, people that use your software and rely on it heavily tend to uh, tend to be more willing to reach out. So how did you wind up working on Mongoose? I mean, I can imagine you're working at MongoDB and somebody walks by and goes, hey, you do JavaScript. <laughs> oh, it's kind of funny. I had a kind of weird time at MongoDB where I got hired to work on the MongoDB core server, which is uh, written entirely in C++, because my previous job, I worked in high frequency trading um, and developing uh, developing trade infrastructure in C++. But, uh, but I never actually worked on the MongoDB core server. I started working on the internal CI tool, the internal continuous integration software, which was an awful lot of uh, Go and Angular 1, which, uh, which was pretty fun. But I kind of started getting tired of that. And when I started getting tired of that, and, uh, the previous maintainer of Mongoose, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Heckman, had 
previously left MongoDB, um, wanted to continue maintaining the project, but realized at some point early 2014 that he didn't quite have the time and effort to uh, to sort of dedicate to the project that it required, especially since the project was growing by uh, growing by leaps and bounds in popularity. So he just tweeted uh, asking somebody just like, can anybody take over Mongoose on Twitter? And I said, yes, please let me take over. And so this was around April 2014. And uh, I've been audit ever since so you still maintain mongoose yep so i i have to ask this because um i kind of was raised on the traditional relational database um you know i learned to do web development on the lamp stack and then um, moved over to ruby on rails and was using mysql for a long time behind the scenes until i got a job where we used postgresql and so you know i just moved over there and uh kind of mapped my knowledge from one system to the other. So, um, and I, I've used Mongo and, and there's some things I like about it and some things I don't, but, but what is the argument for people to go over to MongoDB as opposed to using something that's maybe a little bit more traditional? Well, my argument for using MongoDB and well, my original argument for the bead stack in general was whenever, like when we worked on scavenger, the old version of level up, we, uh, we had a basically our backend was mostly Python. There was some PHP serving up pages. There was the JavaScript on the front end. And then we, uh, we used MySQL down at the bottom. So we had like this crazy stack where objects looked one way in the JavaScript front end. You would go down into the PHP and Python. You have Python dictionary which are entirely uh, which are kind of a separate concept from JavaScript objects they're similar but different and then all of a sudden you get down into the SQL layer by going through the ODM and now you have a completely different data structure that's storing all of your uh, that's storing all of your data at the base level so what MongoDB has done for me is just made it so that it's really easy to think about okay this is what the data is in the database at booster you when you have when you request fuel there's just one data object it's a fuel request it uh, it's deeply it's a pretty deeply nested structure but it's the same fundamental json object in the mobile app which is uh, which is currently on cordova it's the same data structure in on the node backend and it's pretty much the same data structure down in the MongoDB layer with a couple of minor caveats. But like that's kind of what got me into MongoDB in the first place. Um, the performance also really helped in the sense that, you know, you get good performance with MongoDB out of the box without having to set up memcached. Um, okay. But primarily the big win for me was the uh, was the kind of mental model of like, this is the this is how our fuel request structure looks. It's the same in the database. It's the same in node and it's the same on the front end. So it's really easy for people to just kind of pick up like our mobile developers can go into our API, make changes there. They can go into the database directly, change data points and they can kind of see like, oh, it's the same structure. That makes sense. I, I can I can definitely see that argument. Um, so so how do you go from mongoose to mean stack? I mean, mongoose is clearly part of mean stack because the M in mean stack is MongoDB. Did you just did you just say, oh well, I'm working on this stack, so I'll just put a name on it, and oh, mean is a nice acronym. <laughs> uh, MeanStack actually came well before Mongoose. That was, uh, I think, like MeanStack would have been like about a year before I took over Mongoose. Oh, really? Um, 
Yeah. I, the mean stack kind of came out of a project that I was working on in late 2012, early 2013. A couple of college buddies of mine decided to start a little uh, little online fashion company, <laughs> which was uh, kind of weird, uh, which kind of is weird to say now. But I have uh, I have actually been a paid fashion blogger in my lifetime. Very, uh, very unusual, uh, very unusual thing to say. But so the company general idea was we basically wanted to take like your classic fashion catalog and put it on the internet and we uh, and we kind of we decided that we were sick and tired of working in ruby on rails because it was a little bit too bloated and a little bit too slow so we switched over to uh to kind of a node.js and mongodb architecture and started adding in angular and all of a sudden we started seeing these things like click together very nicely in a very synergistic way and so we blogged about it and uh well uh, the, the rest is history <laughs> that's funny so I just I'm thinking about the fashion blogger part of it and I'm just like wow there's there's a story <laughs> yeah so the the general idea was you know we put these fashion catalogs online and put them and basically take like you build a catalog image on our dashboard and it be, goes on to uh, it would go on to Facebook it would go on to interest or Pinterest Instagram Tumblr all these other things so I had a Tumblr blog that was like I blogged about like you know various cool James Bond outfits and where you could buy them so I made some money off of that that was pretty fun that's awesome how to be bond james bond yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then after that company tagged i'm kind of embarrassed to admit but i bought an 800 hundred dollar pair of shoes because that was the exact same shoes that bond wore in uh in skyfall for nice. uh what the tuxedo scene in uh in the casino <laughs> well there you go makes you quite the ladies man or something right <laughs> Uh, or it, it doesn't dubiously i don't know I've, I've been in a relationship for three years so haven't really tested that too much of late <laughs> <laughs> but i'm wearing my bond shoes anyway um so so yeah so mean stack we talked about mongodb and mongoose um what 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 was the deal with es 2015 generators i mean there there's a fascinating topic for a book right yeah, exactly. So my first experience with writing a book was um, basically uh, oh, my first experience with writing a book, uh, Wiley, a publisher based out of Hoboken. They're actually or the New York City area. They're the oldest independent publisher in the U.S. They had a book proposal written by uh, Todd Motto, who you might have mm -hmm. heard of in yeah, the Angular community. Him. Um, he, uh, he, he ended up backing out of the project. And so I ended up taking over that book and well, went through about a year long odyssey of, uh, you know, uh, flaky co-authors bringing on other co-authors and just chugging along, get, trying to get this book out, ended up being like 400 pages. I was modestly satisfied with it in the sense that I knew that nobody was going to be able to read it cover to cover because it's too long and too dense. So me and my co-author, we kind of decided to be like the four hour body for Angular JS was kind of the way we thought about it. Uh, Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour mm -hmm. Body, based on that. So we uh, 
So we basically made it so that it was broken up into kind of largely independent chunks. So you could basically read like one chapter or half of a chapter to learn about a particular Angular concept that you weren't quite, uh, that you just wanted to brush up on and get to understand very well without having to read everything that came before it. Kind of make it like a choose your own adventure for learning Angular. Um, But didn't quite like that approach just because, well, it seemed uh, it seemed very heavy, and a lot of the information seemed superfluous. And from the very beginning, we were kind of uh, we were kind of encouraged to like, hey, you know, we got to fill a page count. We gotta uh, we gotta make this book like uh, justify the uh, the cost of having editors and technical editors and editors for your editors, that sort of thing. So I just wanted to make like a kind of nice lean book that you could just skim through it about two hours and kind of go from zero to hero in one uh, in one subject which was and i decided to choose generators just because um co is a very very incredibly powerful module and one that has really changed the way that i write javascript in uh in ways that i'm still kind of still kind of finding new neat use cases for it so it so I kind of wanted to just like dive deep down into how Co works and how generators work and sort of make it easy to understand that from a very deep level, and has proven to be quite useful at Booster too. Just because well we have uh, we have junior devs coming on, they get kind of confused by how Co works, so they read the first like twenty pages or so, and then they kind of get a little bit more comfortable with it. So how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> Actually, about a month. Uh, the book is only about 50 pages long. It's meant to be just like laser focused, concise. Like you, you read it in two hours, you're done. That's it. There's no, um, there's no like extra, there's no extra cruft and there's no, you know, there's no like, oh, here's how you set up Babel or Webpack. There's none of that. It's just, you know, generators as spec'd. Oh, okay. Makes sense. So yeah. what are you working on now? Oh, so I've got a couple of cool projects. Um, I'm working on Mongoose 4.8, which is going to come out in a couple, well, hopefully next week, but we'll see if that happens. Um, I've been learning a lot about RxJS and observables, and I just came out with another uh, open source module called Archetype, which does, uh, which is basically kind of a standalone type casting and validation library that has kind of become uh, the heart of how Booster's API works over the last year or so. Why not just use something like TypeScript? <laughs> oh, this is uh, this is my favorite discussion. I, I, I actually wrote ask. a blog post about this, but uh, but so TypeScript does static type checking, which is uh, which is great and useful, but it's kind of a supplement to how JavaScript works because nowadays you usually just get data over the network, right? If uh-huh. you're writing a, if you're writing a backend server, like you just have data coming in over the internet, you don't know where the data is coming from. It could be a it could be a malicious DDoS or it could be a legitimate data from or it could be a legitimate request from somebody's app so you so typescript can't check that because the because uh, the data could be coming from outside of the code base so you need runtime type checks which is what archetype does very well and the, the syntax is kind of inspired by how typescript works but I just don't think that TypeScript really solves the fundamental problem that I have, which is uh, which is validating data coming in over the network. And my JavaScript code nowadays, especially with using Co, is rarely complex enough where I'd have like 
deeper than maybe two or three levels of function calls. So it doesn't. Re- so I'm not really that worried about um, about you know functions headers and function signatures. I'm more worried about validating the data that comes in over the network. Interesting. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm also curious. One of the things that I kind of like to tease out in these interviews is just, um, is, is there some kind of overarching lesson or theme that you feel like has you've learned over the course of your career? Um, what, uh, what do you mean? Uh, in so, terms of what? So, yeah. So for example, uh, I've talked to several people that it was basically, you know, Mark Nadal, it was persevere and you can do, things that people think are kind of impossible, like write a database engine in JavaScript. Um, you know, other people, it really has been just, you know, when and how to stick it out or um, how to work on teams or things like that. Is, is there some lesson that you've kind of learned through through all of these different things that you've done? Um, I think like number one lesson is that software is fundamentally about people and building a uh, building any sort of software. It's only really useful if it's useful to the people using it. So for things like Mongoose, it's making uh, it's making the developers that use Mongoose more productive. Within uh, within my team, it's about uh, it's about building systems that make uh, that make the team as a whole more productive, and sort of designing our architecture around how uh, around like the particular uh, the particular layout of our team and the talent that we have. So our team is kind of so our software is just the way that it's shaped is fundamentally defined by uh, the people that we are and the people that are on the team. It's what their very, strengths and weaknesses are, all that. It's it's interesting that you bring that up because, yeah, in a lot of ways it's really easy to get focused on the technology. with, And then we forget about the people who are using or developing or, you know, what have you, interacting with our code one way or the other. And ultimately that's who we're writing it for. So you're absolutely right. And and I, I love that lesson that, you know, that, that thing that people can kind of latch onto and say, oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, another thing I'd like to harp on in that vein is, um, is kind of community best practices. I tend to not be very fond of uh, very heavy handed best practices that just kind of come down from, uh, from whoever is developing the software, like all the, all the, uh, all the added cruft that Facebook has added on to react. Um, I'm glad it's not a core part of React because that would be very bad. But uh, but I don't like the all the bloated best practices that have come up just because like you don't really know what the teams that are working on these particular projects look like. Um, for them, it might not make sense to do X, Y, and Z, or uh, might not make sense to use React Redux, for instance, even if you are using Redux. That makes sense. So. Um if people want to follow you or see what you're working on these days, where do they go? Sure. You can follow my blog, thecodebarbarian.com, or you can, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at code underscore barbarian. Love that. Uh, love that little name. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey, everybody. This is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good, and uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, 
about mobile development and much more and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. You've been on the show, so you get what picks are. Uh, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Yeah, absolutely. Number one, um, check out Archetype. I'm very, uh, very proud of this library. I think it's probably the most important thing that I have done in the open source community over the last year. Um, it's archetype-js on NPM. A very powerful library that really kind of changes the way you do type checking and validation, type coercion. Um, another pick, uh, I've been using Ramda a lot of late, which is kind of a, uh, which is kind of a functional programming inspired equivalent to Lodash. Um, I've started using it because we're, because uh, at Booster we're in kind of a nebulous space where we're halfway using Lodash 3 and Lodash 4. So I just got annoyed with that and started using Ramda. But Ramda has a lot of, is, just makes it a lot easier to compose and chain different operators together. So I'm, uh, so I've been using it more more of late very cool uh, i'm going to jump in here with a few picks of my own uh last year or last year <laughs> last year wasn't that long ago as we record this um so last week um i was at ces and uh i really had a good time there um just saw a lot of amazing stuff um one of the things that i want to shout out about i don't know if their indiegogo is still running or not but there was a little robot for teaching kids how to program called Kubo, K-U-B-O. Um, I'm going to be posting the videos to YouTube and hopefully people will see them beforehand. But um, what it is, is, it has these little tiles that you put down in front of the robot. And then as the robot rolls over them, it basically memorizes uh, the instructions that are on the tiles. And then um, you can roll it over the top of a start tile and it'll run the program. And what's interesting is, is you can actually... Um, they have like a, a start function, stop function tile. So you can tell it to memorize a specific routine and then you can take it that routine and you can stick it in um, another routine. And so then you can get uh, repetition and recursion and things like that out of it, which was also really interesting. So uh, anyway, I'll put a link to my YouTube video in the show notes and also a link to the Indiegogo if it's still up. But it was a really, really fun little project that they had going on there. And then um, one of the other ones that I really want to get, uh, they had these little cars that you control with your, um, and I'll put, a, I'll put a link to the video from this in the show notes as well. But they're little cars you control with your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And you, you actually can buy uh, an arena for them. And then you drive them around and you point your car at the other car and, um, I think it just shoots an infrared because you can't see the laser, but you effectively fire on the other cars. And, uh, you know, there are squares in the arena where you can go and get lives back. You can also drive it around and get like weapon upgrades and stuff. Uh, anyway, it was really, really cool. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't remember what it was called off the top of my head, but I will definitely put a link to it in the show notes as well. That sounds super cool. Video games in real life. <laughs> yeah. One more that I'll, I'll uh, pick really quickly. It was, I forget what it was called. It was something theater, I think. But basically, their $20 um, Google Cardboard-based um, 
goggles for your head that you strap your phone onto, and then you can play VR games on them. And I talked to a whole bunch of different people, you know, who made um, controllers or wrote games for or had some other hardware for VR and AR, but mainly VR. And, uh, yeah, all of them are things that you can pull in with Unity. But, uh, anyway, these goggles were way cool. And so I'm going to pick that. And I, I'm really excited enough about this to where I'm very, very tempted at this point to create a podcast about building VR apps. But I don't know if that'll ever happen. And anyway, it, just super cool stuff. So, um, the, these kinds of goggles are actually being sold right now at Walmart for like $20. And so you just, you buy that, you stick your phone on it and, uh, you play the game and it's really cool. Um, and I played a couple of games at their booth and like I said, just cool stuff. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick all of those things. And, uh, yeah, um, overall CES was just a ton of fun and I'm going to have a ton of stuff to pick over the next several episodes, uh, just to share that I saw. And, and if you're really curious about everything that I ran, ran across and, and did uh, a lot of it's up on YouTube. And with that, we will go ahead and, uh, sign off. Thank you for coming, Valeri. It was great to be on. Thanks for having me on again, Chuck. Yeah, no problem. We'll uh, wrap this one up. And uh, I believe next week we are talking to um, Max Stoiber. So, you know, React Boilerplate and all that good stuff. And then the week after that, we're talking to Rebecca Turner uh, from NPM. So keep, keep your eyes peeled for those. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.